Hey everybody, Sean King here. For the month of July, I'm on sabbatical, so we're rerunning some of our favorite episodes of The Breakdown and other North Star podcasts. I hope you enjoy them, and I'll see you again in August with brand new content. The, the, the Breakdown. Did you know that to properly provide for their families, most people need 10 times the life insurance coverage than they get from their employer? If you don't have life insurance or you're just looking to get a better plan, Policy Genius has you covered. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers in one place. You can save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes just with Policy Genius. The licensed experts at Policy Genius work for you, not the insurance companies. So you can trust them to help you navigate every step of the shopping and buying process. I've used it. I love it. It's simple and easy. Head to PolicyGenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Check it out and let me know what you think. If you've been listening, you know that this season of Sick Empire is all about healing while Black. We've already talked to yogis and Reiki practitioners and therapists and gardeners, and now it's time to go deeper. I titled this episode The Magical Negro, not in the spiritual or literary sense, but in the medical sense. I wanted to expose healing in hospitals and why archaic attitudes towards Black patients still exist today. I'm mainly referring to the school of thought that says Black people are superhuman and therefore are okay with inferior healthcare practices. And I will speak for all Black people now when I say that the conclusion of us being so strong we can win any medical battle no matter how tough the going gets It's not a compliment. It is true that being black in America means that you carry hundred pound loads of heartache and heartbreak and horror and humiliation, but by no means is that hundred pound load not heavy. So on this episode, I'm pushing past the insulting part of the blacks can take more pain theory and diving into the data and the science and the social beliefs behind the dangerous notion that black people feel less pain. There's no evidence to prove that black people can now or ever could take more pain than anyone else. However, there is evidence that proves that these types of racial biases contribute to the inadequate care that black folk regularly receive in hospitals and medical centers. This episode explores the history behind the myth of the superhuman black American, and we explore the data that reveals the racist views of today's medical practitioners and of course, I'll ask about the future of equity in American healthcare. I'm Brandon Janice, and you're listening to Sick Empire, Episode 4 The Magical Negro, Tackling the Blacks Can Take More Pain Theory. Sick Empire. first guest is a brilliant woman who goes by the name Kelly Hoffman. 
Kelly is a senior researcher in a global think tank that works to address bias in the workplace. Her scholarly background is in social science and she has published some unbelievable data on the racial disparities in our healthcare system. I asked Kelly to talk with me about what she has learned in her findings and racial biases. In the area of pain management, that is one of the areas in which racial bias um, is particularly pernicious. So black people are systematically undertreated for pain relative to white people. They're less likely to receive pain medications and then when they do, they receive far less um, than white people. Next, I asked Kelly to share with me some of the contributions that can explain why this racial disparity is so pressing in healthcare. Here's what she had to say. So broadly speaking, um, bias in pain management could emerge for two reasons. So one is that black patients' pain is recognized but not treated. And some research has shown that um, this could be the case and a contributing factor. So um, physicians might assume that black patients cannot afford medication or that they may abuse it or may not adhere to medical regimens. But another reason and, and one that our research is really focused on is the idea that black patients' pain is not recognized in the first place, and thus it cannot be treated. And so mm -hmm. a growing body of, of research has shown that people do indeed assume a priori that black people feel less pain than do white people. And that this perception, this racial bias um, is true among white people, among black people, among younger people, um, children as young as the age of seven show this bias. And so it's a, it's a very pervasive bias. I will say, I mean, one of the, the main things people want to know, right, is this, you know, a racial attitude based thing? Is this born out of racist attitudes? And mm -hmm. the evidence that we've found is that racial attitudes do not appear to be related to this bias. So, mm -hmm. um, we and other teams have looked at implicit bias, explicit prejudice, uh, and they do not predict racial bias and pain perception. And also the fact that Black people too hold this perception suggests that it isn't an intergroup phenomenon. It's this broader cultural and historical narrative instead of beliefs that have come from very, very long ago and are still very deeply entrenched in our society today. Especially Black Americans, is the fact that we are alive, right? The fact that we survived the Middle Passage, the fact that we survived the horrors of slavery, the fact that uh, a lot of Black athletes, you know, are just the finest athleticism of its genre can be seen in Black American athletes. Does, does that have anything to do with the idea that medical professionals have kind of taken that into consideration? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, so what you were mentioning in terms of this, this media portrayal of Black athletes and, you know, this kind of elevation of Black people in terms of, you know, acknowledging that they've endured so much hardship um, and therefore they must be tough, they must be resilient. And we actually have research um, showing that the, these types of beliefs that hardship leads to toughness and resiliency um, are related to racial bias and pain perception. And so we find that people assume that black people have had harder lives um, and those beliefs are related to the perception that black people therefore feel less pain than white people. 
And uh, we also have some other work looking at this attribution of kind of superhuman traits to Black people. So the idea that you know, Black people are better able to withstand extreme heat. Um, and that's related to perceptions that they also feel less pain than white people. And I mean, these are very you know, modern and, and contemporary um, beliefs, but they really do come from centuries ago when slave owners uh, justified slavery and the inhumane treatment of Black people with these assertions that the Black body was biologically distinct from the white body, that Black people's nerve endings were shorter and they were impervious to pain. And then they were just not just championed by slave owners, but also by noted physicians who conducted medical research on Black people well into the 20th century, for example, with Tuskegee experiments. And these were operating under this assumption that Black people must be impervious to pain. They've, you know, their, their bodies are different and they've endured these things. Um, and then, you know, we have this, this perception in today's modern times in the media of the black body as being biologically distinct and in many ways superior. Um, many people hold the belief that black people's um, nerve endings are less sensitive, that their blood coagulates more quickly. Um, some people even believe that black people have an extra muscle in their body um, and that therefore this has given them this status as being more impervious to pain. And there has been, just to clarify, there has been no truth proven, no proven theories to these, these accusations, Correct. right? Correct. So the, this idea that, the, that race is rooted in biology is, is not the case. Uh, race is a social construct. Uh, and so it is the case that there are um, differences in some illnesses. For example, Blacks are less likely to contract spinal cord diseases um, or they're more susceptible to heart disease. But in terms of, you know, biological distinction in, in the body, those are not um, true. Can I ask you when in the data, when in the writing, when did we start seeing writers publishing this, these ideas, publishing this data, when did this start, uh, the idea of trumping the idea that Blacks can take more pain? When do we start seeing that writing historically? Um, so I've seen it in the 1800s. Um, so there is a noted uh, physician, Samuel Cartwright, and uh, he wrote about Negro diseases um, and that you know, black people had these deviant behaviors um, that, and they needed to be punished. And since they were insensible to pain when subjected to punishment, that kind of justified that. And he also talked about um, black people's blood as being highly carbonized and deprived of oxygen, so couldn't um, stimulate nerve endings. And then there were other, you know, writers and physicians um, who also wrote about Black people's imperviousness to pain. Um, I can read you this, you know, incredible quote from Dr. Charles White, who was a surgeon um, also uh, in the 1800s. And he said that Black people could bear surgical operations much better than white people. And will what be the cause of insupportable pain for white men, a Negro would almost disregard. I have amputated the legs of many Negroes who have held the upper part of the limb themselves. 
And so we've seen these in, in medical journals that were mm-hmm. published. And then, you know, today, um, you know, sports writers talk about black athletes again as being as being superhuman. Um, and we see these depictions in films as well of black people being, you know, almost mystical in the properties, such as, you know, the Green Mile, um, Morgan Freeman. Yeah. So as a white woman reading all of this, knowing the data, knowing that the data does not lie, uh, how do you how do you kind of navigate the space of recording and presenting this this black data? Uh, That's a, a, a good question. And, you know, I could never, ever begin to even presume to understand the, the lived experience of, of a black person. And I'm very humbled in, in doing this work. And uh, for me, it's just, you know, this is taking action and this is doing work that is really important and that, you know, we want to get out into the world and that we want to to not just educate people about this issue, but hopefully, you know, provide some solutions and some momentum and awareness. Um, so for me, it's it's an incredibly humbling and also, you know, it's it is painful work to do. I mean, when you just continue to see data coming out of these disparities and then you know, seeing some of the output of, of our research, it's, it's, you know, it makes you take a breath. Yes. You know, you know, I'm wondering, I know that your work is more focused on m- medical health care, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering if any of the data kind of also proves or shows or could explain why law enforcement officers behave to Black people with so much force that you don't see them behaving um, to other people with. I'm wondering, I mean, that's another person I could talk to, but I'm. do you know what I'm saying? I'm wondering if yeah. that idea that they'll be all right, they can take it, I'm wondering if that idea has somehow, alongside the inherent racism, has somehow seeped into law enforcement and which is why, you know, we see what we see. Um, Not only not that police brutality just started with the iPhone, but the fact Mm -hmm. that we're able to kind of see it now. And we can't unsee it, right? You can't unlearn this data. You can't unsee um, a video like George Ford or Sandra Bland. So I'm wondering, like, if that idea is the reason why Black Americans are treated the way they're treated by police officers. I, I think it very well could be. I think that, you know, this pervasive belief that Black people feel less pain and or that they're they're stronger could help explain why police officers use more and often lethal force um, with Black people compared to white people, um, feeling that they are either more threatening, they're more you know, superhuman or stronger, or that they need more force to just to be able to placate them. Uh, and there is some research um, showing that people 
um, who have stronger, who dehumanize black people to a larger extent. So who associate black people with apes, for example, um, condone police brutality against black people more so than to those who, who don't have those associations. And so I think this dehumanizing um, or perhaps superhumanizing in some case, um, or just seeing the black body as, as, as distinct and stronger or in a different biological sense could um, maybe help explain the, the difference in police force. This is just so interesting to me because it kind of begs the question then, if black folk are either superhuman or not human at all, how do you go about treating them medically? How does that treatment look? If that's the idea, if that's kind of the, the questions that we're struggling with, not, not me, but the questions that are being struggled to answer, is the black body superhuman or is the black body less than human, three quarters of a human? I guess, is that where maybe some of the confusion can come from, right? I can kind of almost see that uh, if I'm practicing medicine and maybe I'm white and I don't know any other black people at all. Mm -hmm. And that is my experience. That's what I've always heard, either that black people are superhuman or not human at all. I guess that kind of, I, it would perhaps fog up my treatment or my diagnosis to a black person. Yes, and um, we have done some research among white medical students and residents where we kind of look at this exact question is, you know, one, whether they hold these types of beliefs that the black body is different than the white body and whether that is related to racial bias and pain perception and treatment recommendation. And what we find is that white medical students and residents um, do endorse to um, a significant extent beliefs such as black people's skin is thicker, their blood coagulates more quickly. And these beliefs have consequences for pain perception and treatment. Specifically, white medical students and residents who endorse more of these false beliefs reported that a black patient would feel less pain than a white patient, and they were less accurate in their treatment recommendations for a black compared to a white patient. And so, you know, we demonstrated that these types of beliefs do have a relationship with racial bias, not just in perceptions of pain, but in, in treatment recommendations as well. Um, and I think going back to, to a, an earlier point of, you know, this in some ways of, of a benevolent attribution for people to say, oh, black people, you know, have lived it, they've endured so much, they're so much stronger, or their bodies are, are superhuman in some way, seems like it, it's a positive thing. It seems like we're acknowledging hardship that um, we're recognizing right. that, but then it has this pernicious consequence that we then think they do not feel pain and that they do not require the same level of treatment. And so I think that, you know, we need to to challenge those beliefs and, and that's not an easy thing, right? They are, they're so deeply embedded in our history and our culture from, from historical times and slavery all the way through today and they're, they're around us and they, they continue to be. And so challenging those beliefs, um, challenging 
the assumption that race is rooted in biology, that hardship leads to toughness and resilience um, will be a really important step, um, but obviously an incredibly difficult one. Yes, yes. And I guess when I hear you talk, it just it just sounds so dangerous, right? To to know that not only these biases exist and they exist in health care, people's livelihood, people where people go to get well. Like this is where these biases exist. Like that is dangerous to me. But furthermore, that they kind of, I guess, are still going on is even more dangerous. I guess maybe I hold doctors and scientists at a, maybe this is a, okay, you know what? We're getting down to the nitty gritty here, Kelly, you and I. Maybe this is actually, (laughs) you know, eye-opening. This can be eye-opening for a lot of people because I know that, at least for myself, I... I guess maybe I hold doctors and scientists to a to a higher light. I hold them to a maybe a, a better understanding of people in general and the silliness of the idea that black people take more pain. I mean, it's so ridiculous that of I of course would not not think that a, a doctor or a resident or someone who wants to study medicine, I guess in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, that that is the last person I need to worry about. Maybe they have their other biases towards Black people, people of color, but as far as them buying into completely unfounded stereotypes, the doctor and the scientist, that's the one person Right. That's the one profession that I can count on to just give it to me straight, to just give me the numbers. But that that's not true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we trust that people who are close to science, um, people who have made their livelihood on on treating pain, on, you know, humanizing people and and reducing their suffering, um, that they're also you know susceptible to these same beliefs and messages, um, you know, it's, it is scary. Yeah. So, I mean, can I ask you, now that the data has been collected, right, and it's been published, and it's out there, people can see it and they can read it. Can I ask you, is there any end in sight? Are things starting to get better? Are people in the profession starting to listen to the to the data more that's that's a tough question and and the truth is we just i don't think we have very good measures of that and i know this is you know this is not just a there's no one size fits all solution to such a large problem and one that's also not just rooted in you know individuals, but that is very clearly a systemic um, and cultural problem. Um, and so the first step, yes, is, is documenting the problem, finding out what contributes to it, and then doing the work, conducting the the interventions or solutions, and then testing them. And that's that's the the gap that we have very often in, in science and, and doing this research is, you know, we can do all of this work to understand something, but the leap then is 
is getting people on board with testing different ways to address the problem and then measuring that that and then with so without that research um, without those data it's it is hard to gauge you know the progress that we're making and i'm sure you know especially now with 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 covid we're we're seeing that yes this is still very much a, a major issue and we don't seem to be making progress but um mm-hmm. i think yeah we we just have to do more work um do more do more things like you're doing and and getting the knowledge out there and then um working to create change do you get any pushback more specifically <laughs> when you're talking about the truth, I guess. <laughs> That's way to put it. But more specifically, when you're talking about Black people do not experience less or more pain than anyone else, like just that blatant sentence, do you get any pushback from the type of work that you're doing? Uh, yes, uh, there's always pushback, I think, especially around you know race in, in the United States. Uh, it's a very threatening topic for people, and uh, and so you know we do get pushback. But I mean, the data are the data, and and research. It's not you know just our studies. There are many other studies that find you know very similar findings. These aren't completely novel findings, and this is a very well documented phenomenon. This racial bias and in, in pain. Um, management. And so we, of course, get pushback on that. Um, but, you know, we, there are a lot of champions of the research, uh, not just our research, but in, in other labs and um, in other medical institutions. And, um, you know, that's, that's important. Brilliant. I don't know if that answered your question. You know, I'm wondering because I just can't imagine presenting this work to somebody and then them saying, no, that is absolutely not true. Black people 100% experience less pain. What are you talking about? Like, I, I guess I just can't imagine anyone pushing back from this type of data. Yeah. And I mean, the, and the truth is that there's actually, you know, a lot of research showing that Black people actually report feeling more pain than white people. And um, they may actually feel more pain than white people. So there have been, there have been um, experimental pain induction studies where, um, you know, they do a cold presser task, sticking somebody's hand in ice cold water and seeing how long they can hold it or um, uh, using shocks um, and then measuring people's sensitivity. And it does seem that black people may experience more pain than white people. So again, that makes it even more troubling that we're not just thinking that they feel less pain, but they may actually be feeling more and we're severely undertreating it. I just, I, I think the reason that people push back is they do really assume that this must be a, a racist attitude thing that you're calling uh, physicians, you know, racist. Um, and that's incredibly threatening. Uh, to people. And so I think that's also what elicits some pushback uh, instead of the acknowledgement that, uh, you know, this isn't necessarily rooted in, and it, we our evidence suggests it's not rooted in racist attitudes, but rather in these larger beliefs. Yes. Yes. 
Precisely. And it's almost like people's lives are not just their discomfort, but patients' lives are, are at risk. And I think that when the stakes are that high, um, it's okay to perhaps feel a bit uncomfortable, right? And have to maybe rearrange what you have been conditioned to thinking. But I think even that idea is radical to a physician who truly does want to do the best work, right? Has really no ill intentions. However, I think that even confronting that idea of perhaps them having to accept their own racism, subconsciously or not, I think it's a large step. However, I think it's a a necessary step for the patient, right? I understand it's an ego thing, right? But for the patient's, you know, health and well-being, I think that it is, I think the patients deserve that, right? I think the patients deserve that of their doctors to, for them, if they're going to be treating Black patients, I think they deserve that of their doctors for them to maybe have to take a second look at themselves and their thoughts and and the way that they were raised and the things that they may believe that may be not true at all. It's just maybe going to take a little more work to unbelieve it, if you will. Absolutely. I I think that even outside of the medical context, the, the least you can do is recognize the pain and humanity of every single individual. Yes. And then I just have one last question. I'm wondering kind of along those same lines. I'm wondering if, and I've, I've, read, I've read quite a bit on Black mothers dying in childbirth. I think it was like three times more than white women, Black American women are dying in, during childbirth. And I'm wondering if that has something to do with this idea that Black women can take more pain. Uh, what's more painful than childbirth, right? Does, right. Do, does the data that anything that you've been doing or researching, can any of that kind of speak to why there are just so many Black women um, dying from complications of childbirth? Yeah, it's it's a staggering disparity um, and obviously incredibly devastating. And I think, you know, there are a lot of factors that um, contribute to it. But yeah, I do think, you know, this this myth of the strong black woman um, has, you know, been a, a long held belief. And I think, again, this this perception of strength and ability to endure hardship um, can very well play into the undertreatment of, of Black women and the medical care that is provided to them. Uh, we haven't done research that looked at, you know, that that specific scenario, um, but I know that there is lots of research on both the access to health care and the racial bias on, on the parts of physicians that contribute to maternal deaths and uh, of the, the baby during childbirth. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like that myth, right, of the strong Black woman has been said so many times that it has led people to believe that it's not a myth, that it is indeed fact. 
And, you know, this is so tricky to me because it does almost sound like a compliment. It does almost sound like something to be praised. But when it's leading to lives being lost, when it's leading to this maternal death, I think that we have done ourselves a, a disservice, right? Absolutely. And almost pretending to be well. Our next guest is Faith Mitchell. She is a fellow at the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C. And I asked Ms. Faith to be on today's show because not only has she published brilliant research on the racial disparities in health and health care, but Faith wrote a book in the early 1970s called Hoodoo Medicine. And it's all about how Black folks in the gullahs healed themselves using plant medicine when we were not welcome inside hospitals to receive care. I asked Faith to give us a history lesson on the origins of Black Americans and healing without access to medical centers. Black folks have been healing themselves since we arrived on these shores. You know, I've had a chance to read a few books about plantation medicine and put medicine in quotes partly because in the 18th and 19th century, the, the knowledge of healing, you know, of what doctors were doing was not that sophisticated. And on top of that, the commitment to healing enslaved people was not that strong. You know, they needed people for their labor. But beyond that, um, there weren't, it was kind of no frills. But in any event, if you read about slave medicine, as it's called, you'll see that it was it was only in extreme circumstances. You know, if people were injured or physically injured or vomiting, you know, very ill. And the doctors who treated the slaves, you know, used these very primitive medicines by today's standards. You know, they things that would make you vomit or would give you diarrhea because that the belief was, you know, you get the, the substance that's making you ill out of your body. And the rest of the time, the enslaved people were on their own. And, you know, I don't have the answer to how people learned which plants were healing when they came to, you know, what's called the New World from West Africa. That's something... I, that a question I raised in Hoodoo Medicine, and uh, I don't think anybody really has the answer to it. Maybe they learned from the American Indian populations that they encountered. But at any rate, um, you know, the enslaved people were on their own, really, in terms of sustaining their health from one day to the next. And it's clear that people learned which leaves they could, you know, boil into tea and roots they could boil into tea and um, how they could heal themselves, uh, how they could help women get through childbirth, you know, how they could alleviate pain and get rid of coughs and colds or stomach worms and, and things like that. And so that's how our people survived uh, from, you know, 1620 uh, until very recently. I did the research that's in Hoodoo Medicine way back in the late 70s. Um, no, I'm sorry, in the early 70s, when I was an undergraduate student. And it was kind of right on the cusp of when 
people in the South Carolina Sea Islands started to have access to kind of higher quality, well, outside medical care, put it that way. Don't call it higher quality, call it outside medical care. So I, I went to this with some fellow researchers to this island called Wadmalaw Island that is outside Charleston. It's in Charleston County. But at that time, they, um, they had like no clinics for easily for 20 miles and there was no public transportation so that people were really still on their own in terms if they got sick you know there was no nearby place that you could go to and see a doctor there wasn't a bus that you could take to get into charleston to see a doctor or go to a hospital so it was very much like still being enslaved in some respects you know people were really on their own and I, I was interested in whether that meant people were, were, you know, medicating themselves. And I started asking some of the older women in particular, like, well, what do you do, you know, when, when you don't feel well? Like, are there plants that people use? And people started readily, you know, telling me about the different plants they used. And we would walk up and down the road and they would point out the plants and tell me the name and tell me how they used it. And, and so that was the genesis of that book. And then I was interested in whether other cultures also use those plants, which was why for many of them, I also documented whether American Indians um, had used that plant and also whether the plant was used in Europe. And the reason I said it was the cusp was because at that point, a lot of the younger people on this particular island, Wadmala at least, but I think it was a general trend, a lot of the younger people had left to find work. Um, because if you didn't, the only work on the island really was working in the fields, like picking tomatoes um, or other agricultural crops. And, you know, people don't want to do that. Um, that kind of work that didn't pay, it's hot. You know, it's it's uh, you could work all day and have very little to show for it in terms of money. So a lot of the young people had left for Charleston or for New York or North Carolina. And the islands um, had lots of children, you know, like the grandkids of these older women I mentioned, and then the older people. But the generation that you would pass that knowledge down to wasn't there. And um, so by recording it, by recording what people told me in Hoodoo, in the book that became Hoodoo Medicine, you know, it was a way of creating a, you know, um, capturing that legacy of knowledge from those older generations of the plants that people had been using uh, for centuries, really, at that point to heal themselves. Then, you know, now, of course, there are clinics and there's, um, you know, people are encouraged to go to the health center and so forth on neighboring islands. And um, I suspect that there's less use of those plants from day to day. But I know that the interest is in them is still very strong because um, Hoodoo Medicine is actually selling today, 40 years after I did the research, it's selling better than ever, which is uh, really interesting to me. It shows, Fascinating. That, isn't that something that people, they want to know that knowledge 
and um, they want to use these medicines because sometimes people will write me and ask me where, you know, some of the plants and some of the herbs you can buy online, but some of them are unique to South Carolina. People will write me and ask me if I know where they can get them, and I don't actually know where they could obtain them unless they just go down to one of those islands and start looking for them along the side of the road. But um, uh, I think it, not only are people maybe uh, valuing that legacy uh, from our Black ancestors, but also people are aware of the limits of you know what sometimes gets called doctor's medicine. You know, so there's more doctor's medicine around than there used to be, but we know that it has its limitations in terms of of healing you. And so I think in general, people are just getting more interested in 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 the old ways, I guess you could say it, in the in the natural medicines that people have been using uh, for such a long time. Mm, yes, and. I mean, that's that's just fascinating that hoodoo medicine is selling now more than it ever has, you know, and we are in the middle of a pandemic. Well, you know, Brandon, it caught me by surprise. <laughs> I fell on Amazon and, you know, you, um, you know, you can get the statistics about sales. It has always, um, so it went out of print. Ishmael Reed, the poet, um, yes. first published it and, um, and then it went out of print. And then back in the 90s, I thought, let me see if I can get it back into print because I think people are, are interested in this topic. So then first there was a small publisher who was publishing it. She went out of business. And then I started just um, selling it on Amazon. And they have what's called like, um, you know, you can uh, print on demand is what yeah. it's called. Uh, so the, the sales had actually been good. And I think because people were using the book in their classes, maybe, I never quite knew what it was. And then when the pandemic started, they just went through the roof. And I think it's because people, there was no vaccine, right? I mean, there still isn't. There was no cure. And people were really turning to these other sources to say, maybe this will be, you know, helpful. But it's really been quite remarkable to me because I sure didn't expect it. I asked Faith to tell me what shocks her the most out of all of her years in researching racial bias and racial attitudes in healthcare. Here's what she had to say. I think the thing that shocks me is how little changes, you know, and it makes you angry too. So one of the projects I've been working on is a separate, it's not really health related. It is, um, almost like a memoir that's related to my grandmother. And I've been doing, I had been doing a lot of research on black life at the turn of the 20th century. So, you know, like the 1890s and 1900s. And in, I think it's 1899, W.B. Du Bois wrote um, The Philadelphia Negro. And it has actually, it's like a sociological study and it has a lot of health information in it. And if you read it, you would feel like you were reading about the situation today. He's talking about black babies dying at a higher rate and pregnant black women dying at a higher rate and black people dying at younger ages than white people. Mm -hmm. And, and it, 
it is both shocking and, as I said, infuriating because you think, okay, that was now 120 years ago. And, and why has so little changed since then? And, uh, you know, for many decades, uh, there wasn't even that much written about Black people's health. And, you know, there were, I'm, I'm thinking about, like when I was in graduate school, we didn't read that much about it. Um, when I got out, I got my doctorate in anthropology in 1980, and I was, uh, I'd already written Hoodoo Medicine. I was interested in black health, and I was at University of California, San Francisco at that period, and I started teaching this class that I called Race and Health. In those days, we didn't even have terminology like disparities, much less equity. People were just beginning to kind of seriously document these racial differences in health and illness. Um, and then in 1985, there was this landmark study done by the Department of Health and Human Services that was on, um, I guess called it the Minority Health Report or something like that, that really brought these, these health differences to national attention again. But, you know, so that was 1985. So that was itself, um, what, 35 years ago? But again, if you read that report, it's called the Heckler Report, you would say to yourself, okay, that was then and this is now, and why are we still talking about the same things? It's So that's the thing that makes me angry is that, the the statistics don't change that much. And the reason they don't change is because it reflects um, the fact that there's a lot of resistance, I think, in the healthcare system to acknowledging the, the things that you were talking about, like the, the attitudes that healthcare providers bring to treating black patients. There's been a lot of resistance to acknowledging those attitudes. Mm. been resistance mm. to acknowledging the kinds of barriers that the healthcare system places to people, you know, um, coming, coming into interaction with it, you know, like, um, uh, Jesse Washington at the uh, undefeated, um, which is probably, yes, I've seen that article, you know, right. Yeah. And I saw that survey they did yes. with Kaiser about black people's attitudes towards the healthcare system, people don't trust the system, you know? And, 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 and that's not new, that's not a new finding, but it's like, I've been, you know, it's like the healthcare, people in the healthcare system know that there's a trust gap, but they haven't done that much to overcome that, that trust gap and they could. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of like, well, that's black, that's black people's problem, problem you know? Yes. Um, yeah. And so there's like multiple factors that contribute, not to mention the sort of societal factors, the jobs that people do, whether or not they have health coverage, whether or not their environment is clean, you know, all of these factors that contribute to black people having shorter lives and, and more, you know, pre-existing conditions and health complications. But it, it, as I started out saying, the fact that those that doesn't change is a reflection of the larger society, how it thinks about us, uh, how seriously it takes our issues, 
whether there's any political will to make any you know serious changes that would ultimately be reflected in people's health so that's mm -hmm. that would be my the shock you know and the you know frustration thinking so we now have as i said this 1985 report really elevated the issue that black people's health was significantly worse than white people's health. Since then, there's been all kinds of research, you know, documenting the problem, but the action element, um, the let's do something about it that is seriously going to make a difference, which would, you know, is the part that that I don't see. And that and the doing something about it would involve not just the healthcare system, because they're the people who take care of you after the damage has been done, so to speak. So it's also a question of preventive health, which gets to like health in communities, which is these other factors I was mentioning, like the environments that people live in, the food that they're eating, you know, the jobs that they're doing, all the things that put black people at increased risk of having the health problems that land you in the hospital or the clinic ultimately yes and you were mentioning the woman who's raising the hydroponic vegetables i mean as you know you know the the whole food system is a big part of the problem like the you know the unhealthy food that's that's too cheap and too available in black communities so i live in the bronx new york like mm -hmm. you know in, in the heart of the south bronx and the the almost the risks that I have to take to get fresh produce should be illegal. Like the, it is extraordinarily difficult to get fresh produce where I live, like on my block. I don't know if I've ever seen a white person in my neighborhood, period. And, you know, most of these people are, are here because they are descendants of slaves, mm -hmm. right? From the transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I have to, one thing that I just, I, one theory I can't shake, you know, is that idea that that trauma from being in the fields is so deep rooted that it is pulling us away from anything that comes from the field or anything that put us back in the field, including gardening for food. That is such an interesting point because, okay, several points now. But that point, I because I thought along the same way, Brandon, I'm, I grew up in Michigan and actually out in the country. Oh, me too. You too? I grew up, yeah, I grew up in a very suburban, very white part of Michigan called Grand Ledge. Wait, where's that? I'm from Ann Arbor. Where's Grand Ledge? Okay, Lodge? so Ann Arbor's over by Detroit. Grand Ledge is a little closer to Lansing. Okay. It's um just way on the west side. It's maybe about maybe about an hour away from Ann Arbor, okay. maybe 45 minutes. Well, we ended up outside of Ann Arbor because in those old days, um, they only wanted to sell black people houses in one little neighborhood that was associated with a, a substandard school. So my parents opted to live out in the country instead. And I love nature. And we had a garden. And, um, and, and, and that was actually part of what I resonated with in the, in the sea islands, you know, because it's so beautiful and nature dominates. But to your point about gardening, you know, we, we had a big garden. Um, I always grew up eating fruits and vegetables and stuff. And I 
and I have struggled to understand the point you're making. Like, wow, people come from the South or they come from the Caribbean. They come from these places that are so lush. And yet uh, often they don't, they do not, you don't see the sort of fruit and vegetable consumption that you might expect or the kind of orientation to foods from the ground. Um, and I think that, that what you're suggesting it probably is the answer, the, the trauma, the, the alienation from nature. You know, some people have mm. written about that, that just that point, like people coming from agricultural settings, um, but because there's so much trauma associated with that connection that they, they kind of reject nature almost in a, in a sense. And, and you would, I would want to see black people get back closer to nature because nature is healing. Faith and I spoke for a while about how the food in our communities is leading to disease. And I mentioned how the environment was also a huge factor, the air in the South Bronx, the water in Flint, Michigan. And Faith chimed in on that point later on. Listen to what she has to say about how environmental factors tie into black health and healing. I think that there's also that, um, that sort of blame the victim mentality that you mentioned. You know, well, if you can't breathe, it must be something that's going wrong in your apartment or your house, which might be a combination of just that tendency, you know, to blame individuals combined with a ignorance. I mean, I guess I'm being, you know, you don't even realize that, mm-hmm. that um, the trucks that are going by on the expressway are polluting the air, you know, that they've done uh, within the last 10 years or so, you know, you've seen some of these studies that just talk about, like you said, like a community like the Bronx that might be near a, a, a major highway or something and what that does to the air quality and then how that correlates with like kids' performance scores and mm. its health, you know, mm-hmm. takes the people with the vision to make the connections, you know, and then to kind of educate like these medical providers because they don't have any background in environmental health. It's often the case. Right. So it's just like they say, docs don't even get trained in nutrition. So mm. they can't really advise you that much even about what you're eating mm. if they even think to ask you. You know, there's right. a lot that, that right. there's a lot, there's a big literature on how to improve um, professional training in, in medicine. Uh, on these very points that we're talking about, kind of racial awareness, nutrition awareness, how to talk to people about their weight, how to talk to people about their living conditions. Um, you know, and the good news is that there are people who are trying to do better, who are um, like training medical residents um, to ask people, like, when you go home, are you going to have enough to eat? You know, instead of just sending somebody home and assuming everything's going to be okay, um, find out how they're living and see if there's, um, you know, something that that can be done to improve their situation when they get home. You know, they're like special programs where they not only train them, but they also empower the medical students um, to, um, they call it like writing a prescription uh, prescription for food. I'm thinking of one of the programs. I'm not sure if I have the name quite right, but where they're actually asking people about hunger. And then if they say they don't have enough to eat, um, making sure that they can connect with healthy food when they get back home. But that's all kind of new, you know, within I would yeah. say the last 
10 years or so. And, and interesting, on the racial point, post-George Floyd, and you hope that this lasts, but I've read a number of articles just this year with physicians realizing, you know, kind of a great awakening. Oh my gosh, you know, I had racial attitudes or I heard people making comments, you know, that I realized were racist and we have to do better, you know? So there is this push um, to do better on, from, on a racial standpoint within medicine. And as I said, I hope it lasts. Um, it's not helped by the fact that Black people are underrepresented in medicine. I'm actually working on a, um, just before I talk to you, um, working on a proposal draft that some people are doing at Urban on that very point, looking at how um, what, what happened to the black medical pipeline? You know, that mm -hmm. black people are like 13% of the population, but only 5% of the doctors. Because mm -hmm. if there were more of us, you know, in the medical professions, we could bring our own insights uh, and our own perspectives into what's going on in, in medical settings. Right, because we obviously know that we can't take more pain, right? Oh, that's, no. that's, that's not something that we would trip up on. Right. We're absolutely right. We know that, and we are more, there's, there's, you know, pretty good evidence that we are also more trusted by Black patients. You know, that Black, like, um, Black people who are seen by Black doctors tend to do better. You know, the babies live, there's a lower infant mortality rate, um, People are more receptive to taking medicine, you know, kind of all of the different outcomes that you would want are more successful because the trust level is higher. Mm, yes. You know, and, and just to kind of close it out, what does it look like when we do have more trust, when we have more trust in the healing process? I think I can think of a couple of things. That is a great question. That's a wonderful question. Um, it's like, don't just talk about the problem, talk about what it could be. So for one thing, I would want, you know, this, a, a, one of the big problems with our system in this country is that it is geared to people getting sick, you know? So, um, you know, all of these doctors and nurses and everything that we're talking about, you don't see them, generally speaking, until you're already ill. So it's like one of the goals is to keep people out of the medical care system. That gets back to what we were talking about with healthy eating, with people exercising, you know, with people having clean air, um, you know, so their environment is not poisoning them, their food isn't poisoning them, their work isn't poisoning them, you know, so occupational standards are appropriate so they're not being exposed to toxins in their work. You know, if you have that situation, people are getting sick um, much less often. So that would be one component of, of the future that I would want. And then the other one would be where you do have the kind of racial representation that we're talking about when you do go, if you do have to see a doctor, maybe it's just a um, annual checkup or you're getting your shots or, you know, maybe you have gotten sick and you need to see the doctor but you can, you can literally kind of see yourself in the medical setting. So you have somebody who can almost literally speak your language, you know, 
they they under, they have some understanding of your culture and your background and they don't look down on you and for all those reasons you you approach them with a sense of trust which makes you open to the advice that they're giving you and and then if you have problems taking the medicine or whatever that you feel comfortable sharing that experience with them and getting their advice um so that would be how I would see the the future, um, but but again with that emphasis on fewer people even reaching the stage, you know, where they're having to get dialysis or surgery or some of these other measures because they're living healthier lives and they know how to keep themselves healthy because that's another component of it is that. Um, you know, unless you kind of track down this information uh, the, the way you have and I have about how do you keep yourself healthy, it's not exactly, it's not as much out there as it needs to be. <laughs> and so, you know, even if people are kind of motivated, um, they can't always kind of find the information they need about their their food or their water or whatever. So that's another part of the future that I would want is that people have a, they know how to keep themselves healthy and they have the ability to, to do that. The biggest takeaway from this episode is that under some clinicians' care, Black healing is halted by racism. I'm a firm believer that you cannot take anyone's racism away from them. I don't believe in DEI. I don't believe in training away trillion-mile-long roots of racism. So training non-Black doctors to see Black patients with equal care, to me, it's the same as training police officers to not murder innocent Black citizens. It seems to me that perpetuating the idea of normalizing Black people as superheroes in order to treat them with subpar medical treatment is more prevalent now than ever. The question I'm left with after listening to Kelly and Faith is what's in it for doctors to hold on to their racial bias? Is there a social currency that is too big of an asset for white doctors to let go of? Or is it an ego demon that simply will not acknowledge internalized racism? I'm still grappling with the answers. However, what I learned from today's episode is that the healthcare industry is in desperate need of healing practitioners of color healing practitioners who Black patients can trust. And you know what? I'm not through with this topic. I, I just can't shake it. I have an episode that explores the unthinkable statistics of Black maternity mortality and the two badass women who are taking back our birthright to birth our own babies, healthy and at home. I want to thank the producer of this show, Willis Polk, the sound engineer, Phil Williams, our creative director, Tone, and of course, the listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review telling us what you loved about the show. Have a lovely, safe holiday. This is Brandon Janice, and you just listened to Sick Empire.